Hello, everybody. It's great to be back here again. My name is Gary Fowler. I am the CEO, president, and co-founder of GSD, Get You Done Venture Studios, a premier AI and quantum venture studio located in Santa Clara, California. It is great to have you here today. I'm broadcasting today from Key West, Florida, so it's uh, nice and sunny here. Anyhow, today we have an incredible guest, incredible guest, Pranea, Dr. Pranea Narang is an assistant professor of computation material sciences at Harvard University uh, in, in also the School of Engineering. Prior to joining the faculty, Pranea came to Harvard as a Ziff Environmental Fellow at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. She was also a research scholar in condensed matter theory at MIT, working on new theoretical methods to describe quantum interactions. Her work has been recognized by many awards and special designations, including a National Science Foundation Career Award in 2020, being named a Moore Inventor Fellow by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation for Innovations in Quantum Science and Technology, the C4 Israeli Global Scholar by the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, and also a top innovator by MIT Tech Review a young scientist in the World Economic Forum in 2018, and in 2017 was named by Forbes magazine as a 30 under 30 list for work on atom-to-atom -atom quantum engineering. Dr. Narang designs materials at the smallest scale using single atoms to enable the leap to quantum technologies. She has a Bachelor of Science of Material Sciences from Drexel, and an MS and PhD in applied physics from the California Institute of Technology. As a National Science Foundation graduate fellow and a Resnick S Sustainability Institute fellow, where work focused on understanding light matter interactions in areas ranging from quantum plasmonics to nitride optoelectronics. And of course, she is an avid runner and triathlete and likes to spend a lot of her time outdoors. So with that, it is with great pleasure that I introduce Dr. Narang. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Okay. Good. Not as warm as Florida, but um, spring is getting to Boston, slowly but surely. Yeah, it's good to have you here. So, I mean, you have an incredible background. So what's the journey like? When did you decide you wanted to get into materials and, and to Drexel? And of course, to California. How did you do that? What was that journey like? Um, it was very nonlinear, and a lot of it involved making turns when an opportunity presented itself. Um, I've been interested in technology. I liked tinkering with stuff when I was a kid, and I thought to myself, well, you know, everything's made of something, so maybe I should go study what these somethings are like and, and how to. to manipulate various materials. Um, I originally thought I was going to be an experimentalist and um, maybe a few months into my first big instrumentation endeavor, I realized, you know, this theory thing is a lot better. Um, things break a little less, it appears a little more predictable. I didn't know all the complexity, so I was just contrasting the two things at the time. And I got into predicting interactions in various quantum materials, start thinking about, you know, how do we actually design these in a way that is rational design? So not just trial and error, not just, you know, uh, somebody, somebody made something and now we're going to study it. So as we were doing that, 
and that's where my interest in quantum information really started. You know, we were predicting on large classical computers, but, you know, reasonably big clusters. Uh, GPUs were just coming online, and we started thinking about, oh, well, how do we incorporate GPUs into the computation? Fast forward a few years, I felt like quantum computers were in that same category where people started saying. Oh, gee, how do we incorporate quantum computers? So, at each each point, you, know, uh, you asked about the journey. It's it's just been following where the curiosity and the science leads, and hoping that it ends up in uh, a good direction. And now, I think with my research group being a uh, lot more established than than the early days, we really think about what are problems where we can have an impact where nobody else could do what we're doing to become a little more. Uh, careful about these choices and, and thinking about how you know these impact people's daily life so what, that's what a little bit about my careful. journey pre what's careful mean when you're when you're doing what you do what does careful mean yeah it's very different from uh <laughs> careful in in the conventional sense of the word you know we think about what would be a technology that we could have an impact in not just a 5% improvement or a 10% improvement, but something where I can say, we did something, it was an order of magnitude. It was four orders of magnitude better after we, we, we incorporated some of our innovation. So by careful, I kind of mean the opposite of the conventional use of that word. Mm -hmm. I, I look for problems where there's really a, a many fold impact and not incremental impact. And so what about this thing? So I read an article that said Google has a computer that's 100 million times faster than a supercomputer that can do a that can uh, do something that would take 10,000 years on a supercomputer in 200 seconds. Is that true? <laughs> it's uh, there. There's some nuance there that makes it a little less uh little less impressive. Okay, so you know they have an exciting platform, a quantum computer that's based on semiconductor qubits. They call it Sycamore, and um, it can perform certain problems. Very, very few things that are cherry picked to be better, faster than what you could do with an existing supercomputer. Now, I want to be very mindful of the fact that you know what they showed was a a big step forward in the field. So I don't want to in any way diminish that. But I also want to caution some of the, the listeners and viewers here today that, you know, the advance there was a first step. It was a big first step, but it was a first step towards showing the power of quantum computing in other areas of, of prediction, other areas of optimization. So, and that work is still very much underway. I see. And so you're in communications. So we talk about I was reading an article um, about the teleportation of quantum particles by MIPT and uh, Rush. I actually wrote an article in Forbes about it. And um, but what's going on? I mean, what is happening in communications, and what kind of impact is it going to have in each and every one of us? Oh boy. Okay. So the quantum internet, and everyone's embraced that term. Uh, not not bad internet, but truly an internet that uses the properties of quantum mechanics, uses entanglement as its backbone. Um, yeah, everyone's getting in on it. A few years ago, it was something that people were talking about purely for security, purely for these very special purpose networks. And now, I think it's, it's very similar to the early days of, of ARPANET, where we're building it, 
there's a lot of interest in early applications, but there's also an understanding that there are many applications that will become apparent to us after it's it's built. So um, every everyone that you could think of uh, in, in across the world, every research institute, every uh, technology endeavor is is investing in this area. And the the idea is that you know quantum communications, quantum, the quantum internet doesn't replace classical communications, but it adds a lot more functionality. So, so in a way, it, it's something that allows you to think about unconditionally secure communication. It allows you to think about various clustered quantum devices. So you can think of you know, something that looks like an IoT, but for quantum sensors that has some advantages. We know some of them, we don't know all possible advantages. And the basis of all of this is that you have entanglement, which is truly a quantum resource uh, being shared across the nodes. So, so there's there's a, a lot going what on. What is here. a quantum entanglement? So the, I have a, a viewers all over the world. Some of our CIO, CEOs, CIOs, CTOs of companies. But what is quantum entanglement? And what does that mean for each and every one of us? All right. So that's uh, <laughs> in a nutshell. In a nutshell, that's a, I know. Yeah, I know. Can... Entanglement in a nutshell, right? So. Um, so if you could think about, you know, two particles that have some correlation that is quantum mechanical that can act at a distance, right? And this is where the famous spooky action at a distance uh, phrase comes from. It's essentially, you can think of those two nodes, those two particles, those two entities in some way being fundamentally linked by quantum mechanics. And that's the essence of entanglement. And it sounds very, very amorphous. It's very, you know, um, terrifying in some cases and it's because it has no classical analog for almost everything i can tell you well classical this is the quantum equivalent of abc and and mm -hmm. there's no equivalent for entanglement so that in some ways makes it very special that is what confers the superpower to all of these quantum technologies and um is is essentially the the reason for the season entanglement though is hard to maintain over so in principle, if we didn't have losses, bad things didn't happen, temperature was not an issue, um, you know, things would be good. We could share entanglement broadly at, at very high rates. In reality, what happens is that there is some amount of decoherence. There is some amount of loss of that um, quantum property, especially if you're sharing it over some, some fiber. And so a lot of talk now is around, you know, how do we actually... Uh, deliver the best quality entanglement. So all those applications, right, that would sit in our quantum internet that would use entanglement as a resource require the highest possible entanglement I could deliver, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we are a long ways from me telling my favorite service provider I want entanglement as a service delivered to, to my home here in Massachusetts. But you could see scenarios where even if you have moderate rates, moderate fidelities, you could build some applications. And that's something that enterprises and, and various uh, nation states are, are interested in. So there's uh, uh, you know that early interest towards um, using entanglement. And how much faster is that gonna be? I mean, we look at on scale, what are we talking about? What order of magnitude, if you've just, just for comparison, is there any way to compare it with what we know today? Yeah, you know, the equivalent of, of what is the capacity uh, here is a, a little bit, um, hard. I think you could think of it as the rate of entanglement, that distribution, as well as 
the quality. So both of those mm -hmm. matter. Um, and this is where I keep highlighting that, you know, it isn't a replacement for classical communication technology. It coexists with it because that rate of entanglement that we're delivering is very, very slow. It's, it's very modest. It's, you want to use it as sparingly as possible and do as much as you can over the classical channel, at least at the moment. I see. I got it. But it's the only way we know also of connecting various quantum devices to get to quantum at scale, right? Going back to the original point about um, this, this quantum computer that's good for very specialized problems. Well, if it were actually a thousand times larger, it'd be a lot more powerful. And yet trying to brute force scale it, right? By putting more stuff into the same del fridge, it's a really hard proposition. So the way you could think about networks is that you, you essentially have a way of connecting these various quantum devices, uh, sharing entanglement across, say, uh, a quantum data center, and now mm -hmm. you're using that as um, as your or you know full computer. And there, there are many problems actually that you really, really could not do classically. So there's a, a reason to to go through this quantum network route that um, isn't just about communications. When will we see when we see quantum technology? When we really see it in our lives? When we would start to experience it, and and when is has it started? Will it start soon? You know what's going to happen over the next ten years? Uh, I think it started. I think that you know many companies that most of of um, the folks viewing this today would be interacting with. You know whether it's um, various pharmaceutical companies, chemical companies, places that make materials that go into your your home. They are all interested and in and and looking at various ways that quantum computing and quantum technologies can impact their, you know, um, either their manufacturing, their products, and, and how they, they go about predicting the uh, newest, greatest molecule or, or drug that um, people would be interested in. So so it's not you know as far out in, in terms of uh, touching people's lives as you might expect, it's already happening. Um, and I think that, the era of, of where people very casually start using quantum devices even to do mundane problems is is coming uh, pretty soon as well. So you can access some of these devices on the cloud. Um, there are various companies that allow you to think about parts of the software stack. You know, some of their tools are open source. Some others you you pay a little bit for and and, and try things out. And that's all in the spirit of you know, saying that that various other engineers might know what to do with these small quantum devices that maybe experts in the field are, are not seeing yet, right? So, so I think that's happening as well. So not everyone who is a quantum technologist is um, um, you know, expecting that all of the applications will be revealed by people within the field. I mean, it's so amazing because we talk about it all the time. I got a question for you. What about quantum computers and cybersecurity? How much do we have to worry about quantum computers? I mean, your smile is like, we hear about it all the time and based on the massive amount of power, is that a problem? And I just read today about Bitcoin encryption. Is it risk as a quantum? Is it true? Um, it's so, so, you know, the small quantum computers, the noisy, tiny devices. No, those are not really seriously posing a risk, but 
this idea of clustering, getting to, to quantum at scale, the fact that people are making bigger and awesomer devices, that does pose a risk. And um, you know, everyone that is building hardware has in various forms released something that looks like a roadmap. And that roadmap and, and where algorithms that pose a serious um, threat to, to classical encryption security they're 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 going to intersect in 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 this decade. Now I don't know if those roadmaps will all come to be in in real life, uh, so that's maybe a, a moving part. But mm -hmm. I think if the risk is that encryption as we know it is uh, uh, is is no longer valuable, then maybe uh, even a a limited possibility of that roadmap being correct should be taken quite seriously. Interesting. So, and so what do you see? I mean, what kind of applications do you see? If you see like the top three areas where quantum technology is going to play a part, what do you see from your perspective? I think the first application really is in predicting molecules and materials, right? It's just, this is the, the dream. This is decades ago, you know, with among many quotes from Feynman that we would actually be simulating quantum systems on other quantum systems. So. Uh, molecules, new drugs, therapeutics, um, you know, um, various types of materials that require a very quantum mechanical treatment, those are already being simulated on, you know, um, even these small quantum computers. And there's some work, folks at IBM, folks at Google, um, elsewhere where people are releasing, um, you know, various results, finding surprising things. So far on very tiny devices, we found everything that we've known from running very large classical simulations. But again, that intersection point is um, on the, the horizon as well. And that's what people call essentially a, a practical quantum advantage in quantum simulation. What's just small? You talk about a small, you speak about a small quantum computer. How big is a small quantum computer? Yeah, I'm thinking something that has dozens of qubits, but it's, it's not just the numbers of qubits though. It's also mm -hmm. the, uh, quality of qubits, the the um, gate fidelity, and these are all. You, you never think about those in a classical computer, right? I, I don't worry that my um, computational fidelity is limited by um, the the way my um, you know chip is designed. However, so often we see some flaws, but it's very very rare. Mm -hmm. um, with quantum computers, there the error rates are very high still. So even if people have, you know, more than say uh, 50 or 60 qubits, they may not have the same um, quality and, and uh, same gate fidelity. So certain implementations, certain hardware implementations uh, lend themselves to high fidelity, but slow gate speeds. And yeah. some other cases you get the gate speed, but you don't get that fidelity. And so people are, are trying to get to that scalable quantum computation mark figuring out how we can actually, um, you know, hit, hit some of those, those numbers and, and get to something that resembles a fault tolerant threshold. So, so when I say small devices, I'm, you know, really referring to these uh, NISC devices that are in this noisy intermediate scale quantum era. That was a phrase coined by John Preskill. Mm -hmm. And it started with people thinking that, well, once we are past the 50 qubit mark, life will be good. Uh, just turns out that you know 50 qubits was not the magical number that that everyone thought it would be. Um, we probably need to get to a few hundred or thousands of qubits before we can actually talk about um, running some of these uh, bigger protocols, and before we can even talk about error correction um, being 
a, a reasonable option. So that both of those things are, are what makes me use the word small. Wow. That's, now, what about AI and quantum? Are we going to have a Skynet or what's going on? Because <laughs> you know, we talk about this and it's just, it's amazing at this, and the possibilities that it opens up, but what's going to happen when we have unsupervised AI and this, you know, just in, in your opinion and these incredible quantum computers, what, what's going to happen? Oof. Um, there is a growing intersection between AI and quantum computation, quantum information. People are trying to figure out, is there any advantage to, to trying some of these algorithms, trying some of these approaches on these near-term quantum computers? I haven't seen anything super convincing, though I guess we've not really been considering the possibility of uh, very, very intelligent AI that starts to use these tiny quantum devices and I uh, maybe requires a little more, more thought there. Yeah, my uh, partner is a, um, a very successful uh, businessman uh, from Armenia who's in California who developed his, uh, his PhDs in AI and he has a, a tool called Morpheus. And this is an incredible unsupervised AI tool that he's developed and implemented in his house. Uh, um, you know, I guess that's what a billionaire does for fun, but it's, it's uh, quite incredible, actually. It's asking me about life. It's, you know, we're trying to train it the right way. I'm part of the, the training, but it's very interesting. Uh, what did it say to me? Do you like superheroes? I like Superman because Superman's good. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, you know, that's nuanced. Yeah, yeah. If you want, uh, I'll hook you up with um, uh, him and you can get on it and, and take a look at it. But it's, it's actually, it's phenomenal. It's asking me, you know, what is life? What's really, what is life? And it's asking those kind of questions uh, today. So uh, I'm really interested. And so that convergence is really interesting. The cybersecurity is really interesting. Are we going to have a threat? What about today was Bitcoin? I don't know. If I was like quantum computers by 2022. And then another article said 2027 are going to be able to crack the Bitcoin encryption. Is this like, is this fairy, are these fairy tales or what do you think? Um, I think they all fall in the category of how much do you want to believe a hardware roadmap and mm -hmm. the thresholds that you can get to with those, you know, physical quantum devices before um, a, a protocol and algorithm can actually use them and, and pose a serious threat to, um, you know, anything, you know, in, in crypto, right? So, um, so the variability you're seeing in the timeline is really coming from how confident people are in a particular, um, you know, hardware provider's roadmap. I think hardware providers want us to, right now, trust that they're going to release something in six months, um, and and um, you know, start start working on on the algorithm. So that's that's happening, right? A lot of people know that you you can't come up with an algorithm after the device exists, um, but you know, benchmarking it, showing that it's actually going to pose a serious threat, I think there's there's some some wiggle room there. <laughs> I like how you're putting it nicely. There's a lot of, you know, sometimes we go out and we forecast things that aren't real right now. We talk about a roadmap that's a, a vision. No, I, I hear you 100%. It's interesting, though, that people, now we're starting to talk about quantum so much, Pre, It's unbelievable. When I'm on panels and I do three, four, six a day, and I hear about it every single day about quantum. 
quantum and AI, unsupervised, semi-supervised AI, what's going to happen? How do we deal with this? You know, the challenge is we got 40 zettabytes of data in front of us today. Well, if you stack DVDs one on top of another, it will go 29 between the Earth and the moon and growing estimated like 67 to 68% per year. So we're inundated. And Toffler had a term, infobesity. We're in a state. And so these technologies that you're developing, these incredible tools, communications, uh, the materials, these are the kind of things that are going to help us live longer, help us redefine our life, help us deal with a population explosion from 8 billion currently to 13 billion by the end of the century. You know, all so many things. And then, you know, I have a couple astronaut friends that talk, and I'm sure you have the same, that talk about space exploration and, you know, how this is going to impact us there. There's a lot for us to do, a lot for us to see. And so what you're doing is just an incredible for humanity. It's 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 really incredible. Uh, thank you. Uh, there is, you know, certainly a major impact from predicting various new molecules and materials that will make all of those things possible, right? Whether it's um, more reliable or renewable materials, something that can allow us to build places that that you know current materials can't whether it's it's molecules that are able to do catalysis a lot better, things that allow us to, um, yeah, so I think ultimately it really comes down to to those building blocks that you could predict better using quantum computers. And I, I look forward to the positive impact of uh, quantum computing. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's, on the other side of it, you know, the, the, you know, people say, what about these rogue states that are going to develop quantum computers? And, you know, we're going to have basically quantum computers squaring off against one another. Right. And uh, I've heard that a few times, too. I, you know, that that's the other side of the picture. I hope that, you know, from a humanity standpoint, we understand we need to we're on a small planet and we need to make sure we make the best of it and uh, building systems that are so powerful that nothing good's going to happen is uh, not in our best interest. Yeah, I think, you know, the U.S. and, and uh, so the um, allies we have across the world are pioneering technologies in, in the quantum era. Um, it's, it's, it's a little more fluid, though. I think there are various, you know, um, countries, various efforts that are all racing towards this. Um, and I, I tend to, I'm an optimist, so I tend to tell people, well, let's think of it as something that we're doing cooperatively, right? Uh, let's go the route of, of sharing some of the knowledge and how these are built, uh, sharing some of the knowledge in, in the, the various algorithms, the, the software. But I know not everyone embraces that view. So um, there is uh, certainly some thinking that needs to, to go into this. This is um, an area that is, is a, a, at least in the U.S., a national strategic uh, initiative. This is uh, received support, you know, um, bipartisan support. That's that's uh, all the way uh, through the ranks at, at the White House. So I, I think people recognize that this is important. And around that, if there's something I could add, is that you know we need to train our um, workforce, our our next generation of people, our future quantum engineers, to to join uh, the field. And and that population of people, that set of folks who are interested in being quantum engineers, quantum scientists, quantum technologists, quantum businessmen in future, businessmen and women, need to actually um, better represent the uh, the demographic of the country today and not necessarily uh, the traditional physicists. So 
I, uh, I hope that that's something that can also be factored in as we grow from a technology standpoint. No, I agree with you 100%. I mean, we, we, we put our money where our mouth is and, and uh, you know, trying to do the right things and, and uh, make sure we have cultural diversity, intergenerational teams, you know, those kind of things. Sometimes we forget that people with experience can bring a lot to the table. <laughs> it's amazing. You got the 20 somethings, you know, being from Silicon Valley, I've seen it a lot of times, but having those connections in the network really are important. It's a great, it's a great world. And, and uh, I got to say that I'm honored that you took time out of your busy schedule to meet with us. One other thing, I know you've got, you're working on a quantum engineering program at Harvard uh, from what I read from your bio. Yeah. And there are a lot of people all over the world that contact me. How do they, you know, if they wanted to go in that program, it sounds pretty cool. What do they need to do? Just apply to Harvard or is there some, some special way to do that? No, I am making all of the things that I've developed for quantum engineering available open source. Uh, that includes things like notes, that includes things like you know slides, and, and not everything will always be up to date. I'll do my best to keep it up to date. There already are a couple of open source textbooks, but also you know uh, things like here's a set of labs you can try. Here's how you know um, I tried accessing this device and, and things I experienced based and, and things you can do better. So I intend to have all of that available on on my website. And of course, uh, you know, if you apply to the the program here, uh, that that is uh, another way to to be a part of it. Uh, there's a recent announcement of a quantum science and engineering, a quantum science and technology uh, PhD that that we're um, going to have here. I think that there are going to be various efforts across the uh, spectrum. So things at the undergraduate level, there's even talk of uh, quantum programs at the, the K through 12 level. So well, that's yeah. fantastic. I love it. Now it's great. And, and uh, you know, you're doing an amazing job and, and you're, it, it's incredible actually the things that you've done and, and the awards that you won and, um, and keep going forward on the quantum side. What are some closing thoughts for the, um, for the viewers out there, any closing thoughts on quantum from your perspective? Yeah, I'd say dive in now, especially if you're a CIO or a CTO of a company that uh, is thinking about quantum, is is not quite sure uh, whether it's quantum computing, quantum networks, quantum information science in general. Um, there, there are various resources out there and, and I uh, strongly encourage you to start looking at uh, some of those now rather than uh, two years from now. It's gonna That's come great. faster than expected. Faster. And Pri, how do they get a hold of you? If people have any questions, is there some way they can get a hold of you? LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, my website as well as my email are, are the best. So my email is my first name dot my last name at Gmail, Praneha.narang at Gmail. You can write um, me via my, my website as well, which is uh, So. Um, yeah, it's one of the things about a, a hard to pronounce name also is easy to Google. That's great. Pre, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Viewers, thank you. I'll be back again on Thursday with another edition of GST Presents. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, Pre. Look forward. Thank you. Bye-bye.